0: Almighty God, great shepherd of the sheep, sustainer, provider, protector, you are both good and wise. Thank you. We confess our assumed provision, our inadequate analysis of our own needs. We confess our attempts to order and determine our own dreams and ambitions outside of your evident care and protection. Lord, grant your grace and mercy that we might repent of such empty self-care and instead this morning turn to Christ and him alone as our great shepherd and our sovereign God of peace. Thank you for the authorities and leaders that you have placed around us. We know that they are in our lives for our good and our advantage. As we trust your perfect care for us through them, help us obey and submit to our leadership as unto the Lord. Grant us a clear conscience. As we stand in your presence and give us a sure hope of endurance as we live carefully in this difficult and even sometimes dangerous world. For we are strangers and exiles, Lord, looking for a better country that is a heavenly one. So turn us now to receive your preached word by faith and with repentance and hope and joy and a longing for the peace that will come when our precious Savior returns and draws His people to Himself as the Great Shepherd. We ask this, Father, in Your Son's most precious name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13. Notice with me this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19. 17 through 19. Three short verses. And I'd like for us to consider this morning these verses as we look at the text together. I'd like to begin by giving you a tale of two churches. A tale of two churches. Church number one. If you drive by this church on the church sign out front, it clearly states the name of the church. Truth Baptist Church. The church has been around for many, many years. The pastor there is prominently posted on that sign, Reverend Joe Webb Sr., Pastor Emeritus, he's been there for almost 35 years, and he's been serving that church there. Now, don't go Google this and try to find these churches. These are made up. If, if there is any, it's completely by circumstance. I've been I'm making these, these two tales up. Reverend Joe Webb Sr., Pastor Emeritus, is at Truth Baptist Church. He's been there for over 30 years. His wife, Kim Webb, is the secretary And Joey Jr. is the youth minister. And he runs the church with a very firm hand. Nothing happens without him knowing and approving of it. He's a dictator and extremely authoritarian. And it served the church well, maybe, for the last several years. But indeed, he is the sole one responsible for and the whole weight of the church is leaning upon that one person. That's church number one. And that's an example of authoritarianism. Church number two. The tale of church number two. Independent Baptist church. You ride by this church and you recognize that it's probably not that old. Maybe 13, 14 years at the most this church has been in existence. However, this church has been beaten and battered. They have horror stories for all nine pastors that they've had in those 13 years. And with every pastor, their hearts have become more and more leery of leadership, especially the guys who want to come in and do all the new fangled stuff and to change everything and make it different. And so this church has reverted to the fact of being able to take care of themselves. There's a body of deacons there. The pastor can come and go. And the body of deacons and the congregation as a whole pretty much makes all the decisions. Nothing can be passed from the color of the paint to the where they put the mailbox by every single person that's there in the church. That's an example of anarchism. <laughs> everybody rules, so nobody rules. Do you see the two distinctions of church polity, what we call church polity, or church leadership? One's a dictator, authoritarianism. Another is every single person has the same right before God to judge and to rule the church. And so everybody makes all decisions. And so what we have is the two extremes there. And we need to note this morning that those two extremes are prominent in our world and sadly even in our country concerning churches. And they are not the biblical polity, the way that God has designed or ordained or shown us in Scripture of how a church is to be ordered and to be governed and so this morning I wanted to begin by giving you those, you those two extremes and showing you that as we look at our passage this morning, verses 17 through 19, there's not a lot of data given here as it is elsewhere of exactly how a church should be governed. Who are these people? What are their qualifications? How are they to serve? What are they to do? There's a lot of details that we're not going to deal with this morning. And the reason is because as, we've been, as I've been harping on this week after week, this pastor isn't trying to just um, just kind of shotgun give uh, the congregation at the end of this sermon, the book of Hebrews, a bunch of, um, um, of wonderful truths or things to think about. He's trying to help his congregation endure during a very difficult and dangerous time in, their, in the life of their church. And there are many who are seeking to or desiring to apostate or leave the faith altogether. And we know that from reading through the book of Hebrews. And so as he's telling us what to do, these these commands, these imperatives, these these things that he's encouraging us to in chapter 13, he's not just doing it uh, outside of a context of he's wanting his church to endure. And so he tells his church, for example, in chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. And then he explains that in verses 2 through 6. And last week we noticed that he, he encouraged his congregation, remember your leaders, and specifically those who have gone on, Remember those leaders. Specifically, uh, consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. We saw that last week. And each week I've been showing you how each one of these commands or imperatives were for the purpose of helping his congregation to endure. And so here in our passage this morning, we have a short section concerning leadership and exactly what they are to be doing for their current leadership that they have in their congregation. But notice it's not very drawn out. It doesn't have a lot of details and answers far less questions than maybe we would like to ask, and yet he's giving, up, giving them this understanding of what they should be doing for this very purpose, that they may endure. In order for them to endure, they need to be doing these things. And this morning, we're going to see the two things that he's asking this congregation, he's imploring this congregation to do. The first is point number one in our, past, in our, in our sermon this morning. Point number one, obey your leaders. Do you see that there in verse 17? Verse 17. And point number two is in verse 18, pray for your leaders. Simple enough, right? Simple enough. Obey your leaders, point number one. And then point number two, pray for your leaders, and that's in verses 18 and 19. See, the difficulty here is this. Is that these leaders that were in the midst of this congregation were asking a lot of its members. These members were having to go through a very difficult time. Some of them were even losing their possessions. Some were being thrown in prison because of their faith. And so these leaders are encouraging them to endure, but not just endure in the faith as we know it today, as just kind of accepting Jesus and living in our workplace with Jesus. But there was real cost to not only the the men, but also the women and the families. And these leaders were leading this congregation to not abandon the faith, not to turn away from it, but instead to stay with it. This was a big ask. This was a big, a big demand that these leaders were asking of, of, of this congregation. And the congregation was beginning, as we notice in the book of Hebrews, they were beginning to ask the question, wouldn't it be easier if we can somehow put a foot in both worlds? Somehow live in our past Jewish faith just a little bit, and then in our Christian faith just a little bit? It would make things a lot easier. There wouldn't be as much persecution. Do we really have to be as strict and dogmatic and is careful to believe in Christ and Him alone, and to abandon our Jewish way of life altogether? Should we be doing this? Is it, wouldn't it be better for our families if we were willing to kind of balance the two? And these leaders were saying, no, there's only one way to God, and that is through Christ. And it was causing a lot of pain and struggle. And so these, this congregation was beginning to ask the question, should we obey and submit to our leaders, even though they're asking us to do amazing things? causing us to sacrifice so many things. And the pastor that's preaching this sermon, the pastor that wrote this sermon, is encouraging his congregation and saying, yes, you need to obey your leaders, and you need to submit to them. So this morning, I want us to notice these two points, obey your leaders, and then pray for your leaders. Point number one, I want us to notice first as we consider our text this morning. Point number one, obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Notice this authority that has been given to not only the leaders, but also to the congregation. You see, in our passage this morning, in verse 17, we have responsibilities not only for the congregation, they're to obey your leaders and submit to them. That's what they're supposed to do. But we see also the responsibility of of the leaders. The leaders are to, for they are keeping watch over your souls. You see that? So the responsibility not only to the congregation, but also to the leaders. This morning, my prayer congregation, I realize this, this passage is, um, is it, honestly, it's difficult for me to stand up here as your leader preaching about leaders. It's, it's a lot easier to maybe go find some other pastor to come in and preach this sermon for us this morning so that they can preach it without feeling like he's, he's kind of edifying or push-pointing everything. But this is the text we're at, and honestly, I haven't, I haven't jumped here, have I? We, we move, we, we're moving through the text, and we're here this morning. And so the, the message this morning, granted, you're sitting there thinking maybe this is for the leaders. And, and, and Shane's going to really let the elders have it this morning, right? Um, but this is not only for the leaders, but it's also for us as a congregation to know what kind of leaders we're to have, but also how we're to be responding to the leaders that God has given to us. And so my prayer is that the Lord will bring all of us together and find this passage specifically helpful for each and every one of us. Because we see here specifically the responsibilities not only to the congregation, but also to the leaders. Notice with me these two words that have become dirty words in our culture: obey and submit." These words used to be very common, specifically within the church, and even in wedding ceremonies. That's the when I realized that's the first time I realized that these words were not thought of as being uh, what they are. When you do a wedding ceremony, as I have before, and I use the words "obey and submit." And you hear somebody gasp from the congregation. I can't believe I would still use that archaic language, or that the wife would even want to use that archaic language in her vows. This, these words have fallen onto some pretty hard times. They are not respected or understood today, and we must confess, and I will confess, that they are words that have been abused by dictators and authoritarians. But these are the words that God has given us this morning for what we are as a congregation to be doing toward our leaders, what we're to be understanding our responsibility toward our leaders. We're to obey them and we're to submit to them. Let me give some clarification, however, on these two terms that may help us shape this understanding around what Scripture says these words are as opposed to what we often like to shape our understanding around these words. The first one is the word obey. This is not a typical word for obey in the New Testament. It's actually uh, more of the idea of be persuaded by, trust in, be sure of, have confidence in your leaders. So this word for obey is the idea of being persuaded by, trusting in, being sure of, having confidence in your leaders. Now, why would I say that? Because this very word is the word that's being translated. You can write these down, don't turn to them, because I'm, I'm going to move right through. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13 uses this word, and this is how he uses it. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13... And again, I will put my trust in Him. You hear that word trust? That's the same word as the word obey here in verse 17. Again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children of God have given me, has given me. So here' speaking of putting a trust in Christ. And then in Hebrews six, Hebrews chapter six, verse nine, there's another use of this word, this very same word here, the root of it anyway. And it says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Do you hear that word sure or confident of better things? Things that belong to salvation. And so in those other two occurrences in the book of Hebrews, one is translated to trust in him, meaning trust in Christ. And then the other is be sure of things that are coming. Be confident of those things. And so do you see how this word here for obey isn't just a um, do what I say kind of word? It's a confident, trusting, being sure in your leaders to the point that you're willing to obey them and do what they say. The second word we have here is probably even more of a dirty word to, to many in our culture. It's the word for submit. It's interesting. It's the word, it comes from the root word icon, which is from the word icon that we get our word icon from. And the idea here of submit is not just to um, keep your head down and and follow in behind a person. No, instead, this idea for submit is to resemble the appearance of that person, icon, to, to take on the form of that person, to act and live in a way that represents that person. So do you see how these two words, obey and submit, They're not a simple do-as-I-say obedience or a keep-your-head-down-and-follow-in-behind-me submission. But instead, listen here, instead these words are speaking of a trusting and confident obedience and a watchful, imitating submission to your leaders. Do you see how that works? In other words, it is directly connected to who we are as leaders that you're to be watching and to be imitating, that you're to be obedient because you're confident and sure that we're doing what God has called us to do and how God has called us to live. And so this trusting and obedience here is directed toward the congregation. They're to obey their leaders and submit to them. It's interesting that it goes on and then it shows us what these leaders are to do. What are these leaders, what are they supposed to do with this authority that they've been given? You as the congregation are to obey and submit. But what are the leaders supposed to be doing in that obedience and in that being sub- submitted to? It says here in verse 17, For they are keeping watch over your souls. The leader's responsibility is to keep watch over Your souls. Notice what the leader is not responsible for. I think this is necessary in our day to delineate. The leader is not responsible to gather crowds or to grow a church. The leaders are not responsible to be the CEO or the professionals of the company. The leaders are not responsible for running programs or events. They're not responsible for keeping people happy. They're not supposed to be responsible for keeping the church in the financial black instead of the financial red. They're not responsible for producing converts or comforting sinners. They're not responsible simply for marrying and burying people. It says in our text this morning that the responsibility that we have as your leaders is to keep watch over your souls. In the helpful book, The Shepherd Leader, which we as elders read a couple of years ago, it notes four different things that a shepherd or we are to be doing as we love and care for your souls. We're to know the sheep, feed the sheep, lead the sheep, and protect the sheep. Know, feed, lead, and protect. We see all of these things that we're to be doing in order to care for your souls. We see these in passages that delineate for us what we're to be doing as leaders. Let me read just a few of these for you and you can write these down and read them later so that you can be praying for us as leaders that God would grant us grace to do what God's called us to do. Acts chapter 6 verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Acts chapter 20 verse 28, Pay Careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What has he called us to be overseers to do? It goes on and says, to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. Isn't our church? It's God's church that we are stewards of, and we carry that very carefully. Paul goes or excuse me Luke goes on and says I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them this is the protection understanding therefore be alert remembering that in 3 years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears that's Acts chapter 20 verse 28 and following 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you hear the feeding and leading and protecting and knowing of the congregation? Brothers and sisters, my greatest fear is that we think we can do this at arm's length. A shepherd isn't a shepherd unless he smells like the sheep. He can call himself a shepherd all he wants to. But if he doesn't smell like the sheep, he hasn't been working with them. And so our calling as leaders is to get close to the congregation, to be familiar with you. We can't shepherd you if we don't know your name and your children's name. We need to shepherd you as God has called us to be shepherds. We need to, as Jesus has called us to do, a shepherd will lay down his life for a sheep. And so this morning I want to encourage you to pray for us as a a body of elders and as leaders, congregation. Because the task that God has called us to is a great one. We're handling something that is eternal, and that is the church. And we take that with great awe and responsibility. The weight is overbearing. Many of our elders, not me, I have the privilege of being able, by the grace of God and by your kindness, to be focused on this task by myself and on my own each and every day. But many of your elders work 40 to 70 hours a week and shepherd you as well. To so pray for them, that the Lord have sustained them. Now, how are they to hold this authority? We just saw what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to, as it says here, keep watch over your souls. But how are they to do it? Notice with me in verse seventeen: as those who will have who will have to give an account. It's one of those verses that should make us, and it has made me shudder. Do you know we have a greater accountability as leaders of this congregation? When we stand before God, we're going to give an account for how your souls are doing. It's not something that we take lightly, nor should it be. Know this, all authority, hear this, is derived authority. All authority is derived authority. It's authority that God has. God has all authority in heaven and on earth, right? And so the authority that God has given to us as His, as his leaders of this particular congregation is derived from Him, And so we're going to be accountable for the authority that God has given to us when we stand before Him one day. Many people don't understand that when we seek to govern and care for people's souls and to shepherd, that we often make people upset in so doing. And though we do our very best not to, we're more concerned about whether God's going to be upset with our judgment than with yours. Does that make sense? So we try to be careful to understand that this authority that God has given to us, that we're carefully able to administer, because we will indeed give an account for it one day. We noticed this morning as Caleb read Jeremiah 23, some of the most strong indictments and corrections toward God's leaders in the Old Testament was for the purpose of of their lack of leadership among God's people. And you know what their primary problem was? You know what the main thing that God's, pe- that God's leaders didn't do in the Old Testament that, that received the the, the vast the, the, the most strict of judgments? Listen with me, if you will, Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Do you see what, what the problem is? These shepherds are instead of gathering God's people, they're scattering them. Instead of bringing God's people around God's word to hear His word, they're they're indifferent about whether the sheep are all over the place. Many of us don't have the paradigm of shepherding, but sheep are supposed to stay together. That's where they're most protected and most well cared for. If they're scattered all over the place, the shepherd's not as able to be able to take care of them. So here in Jeremiah 23, 1, he says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of the pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. He says, this is what I'm going to say to the shepherds that are supposed to be caring for my people. This is what he says. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declared the Lord. In other words, you will give an account, shepherds, for not attending to the flock that I've given to you. Verse 3, Then I will, this is God saying, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord." So you see what God's doing here? He's indicting these, these shepherds for, for not gathering his people, bringing them together. But instead, he, they're okay with these, his people being scattered all over the place. And he says, I'll bring new, I'll bring new shepherds in. And you know what they'll do? They'll, they'll gather my people and care for them. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly why. And this may sound just way simplistic. But that's exactly why we as leaders, as elders in this congregation value this morning, Sunday morning, gathering so critically. You all know that if you're a regular attender of our congregation and you miss on a particular Sunday, you will get a worship journal saying we missed you on Lord's Day. That's not by some kind of accident. That's because we value the Lord's Day. And you get a stick of gum in the process. And everybody loves that for some reason. Um, and I'm not trying to. Somebody actually said yesterday, said, I think, I think I might miss one Sunday because I want a stick of gum. That's not the idea. So uh, that's, that's not the route we're trying to go. But the idea, brothers and sisters, is that we as elders, um, we know when you're here, we're not trying to dig into your life. We're not trying to stir things up. We're not trying to find out all the skeletons in your closet. That's not our job. We don't care to do that. But we're to care for your souls and to the best of our ability in our sinfulness and in our struggles. We're seeking to love you well. Help us. Help us do that. For brothers and sisters, we're going to stand before God one day. Mark Dever, which is a pastor in D.C. that I read often, tells of a Scottish elderly pastor named John Brown. And he was talking to a younger pastor of a small congregation. And this is what he says. I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small. In comparison with all of those brethren who are around you, but, be, but assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. I don't understand the pastors that want megachurches. I can barely shoulder the weight of the souls that God has given to us. doesn't mean I don't want us to grow, but I know that with growing comes responsibility, and that responsibility isn't just for pipes and lighting. It's for the souls of men and women. And so, brothers and sisters, pray for us as your, as your leaders. Obey and submit to us because we are watching over your souls as those who will give an account before a holy God. Notice here the reception of this authority that was given to these leaders. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keeping watch over your souls as those who give an account. Second sentence there in verse 17 says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Do you see the reception there? There's two ways that you can receive this authority that's been given to us as elders and leaders. There's two ways you can receive it. The first way is you can you can, so, you can so obey and submit and understand that though we're not perfect as elders and leaders, we're trying to be faithful to shepherd the congregation well. And so you are willing to lean in and to love us and to pray for us and to help us as we seek to, to, to lead our congregation. And in so doing, here's the first response. It says in verse 17, let them do it this with joy. That's a joy to us. So many of you are an example of this very thing. And our elders can say this, that the elders' meetings on uh, on, on the, on the first Tuesday of every month are the highlight of my month, where we're able to rejoice with so many things that we're seeing the Lord do in our congregation and how He's working in our congregation. It's a joy to shepherd you. So many of you have been so faithful to love us well and to pray for us and to care for us. You make it a joy as this is speaking of. But there are others that there's another response here that says that a congregation can push back from this leadership and soul care and question every attempt to know and lead and feed and protect the, the, them. And they will push back from that and they will question that and they will ask questions about that. And they will not want that leadership. They will not desire that authority over them. And in so doing, it will cause the leaders and the elders to groan. It's an amazing word because in, in the appropriate elders, that's exactly what happens. We're like, huh. It makes them groan. Some may say, well, I don't care what they say. They're trying to lord it over us. They're trying to be dictators and authoritarians. I, I, I don't care what they say. It's not, it's, not of my, it's not any of my business. I'll take care of my stuff, and they can take care of theirs. They can do what they want to. What does the word of God say to that person? What does it say to the person that makes the leaders groan in their in their, uh, in their attempts to fulfill the calling that God has given to them? What does it say in verse 17? It says, for those who make those elders or leaders groan, that that... For that would be of no advantage to you. Do you know you're doing yourself harm? It's no advantage to you. It's no advantage to you to push back and push away from the authority that God has given. Everybody is fine with God's authority. Everybody's fine with God having authority over all things. We're even okay with God exercising His authority in any old way He would like to do that. God is God, and He can do what He wants to do, and we're okay with that. The problem is, is when God gives authority to people and then puts them over us. You see, we're okay with God's authority as long as it's something that's out there or something that only God is doing. But did you know that God's authority is exercised in this world specifically through people that are in your life. In other words, God's authority in the world and in your life are being is being routed through the authorities that are in your life. The leaders that are in your life. Well, how in the world can God be 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 showing his authority through the American government? Well, he's done it throughout all of the Bible. Page after page, we see God orchestrating and ordering governments to do his bidding and have authority. Now, no authority that God has given to you in way of a leader or one that's over you is perfect. None of them are. None of them are perfect. Sometimes we think, well, we will give them the authority that they deserve when they start acting like they need to be authoritative. God hasn't given you the authority. To judge your authorities, right? God has given scripture to help us in that regard. So the idea here is, and we need to be careful. We need to obey our authorities. What does the scripture say? As unto the Lord, right? We don't just bear we just don't do whatever anybody asks us point blank. But know this, and I think your you fathers can probably testify to this. You don't lose the right to be a father because you you fly off the handle or you do something that isn't isn't most loving and kind in your authority as a father. You don't lose that right, do you? You just were a bad father during that time. (laughs) You were just a bad authority. But you don't lose that right. And we shouldn't give our children the opportunity to say, you know what, as long as you think I'm doing well, children, then you can obey my authority. If you don't think I'm doing well, then you don't have to. Right? All authority that God has given to his people is derived authority And it's authority within the bounds of people that are sinful and sinning. And so we need to understand that um, that's the world we live in, and that's the authority that God's given to us. And so how will we endure in this world that's so dangerous and difficult? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to obey your leaders and submit to them. Know that these leaders are for the purpose of watching over your souls as those who will give an account. Now, many of you have testimonies, and I've heard them, of times when you were having to obey an authority in your life, whether it be a spouse or a cowork- or a worker, or an employee, an employer, or uh, a government or something, and you didn't like it. You just did not like it. And yet you did what you knew was necessary because it wasn't sin. it's was just something you didn't like. And you, on the other side of that, saw how God blessed it even in the midst of that right? How God used it even in the midst of that. Your, your submission, your willing to be submissive to that authority was a blessing unto the Lord. That's how God works. That's how God works. He's worked in my life that way. And so I say all that to say that um, pray for us as, the, as leaders and elders, that we may lead you well, and that you may obey and submit to us as those who, as, as kind of a congregation who trust us and is willing to mimic and, and follow after our example. So, we see here in this passage that not only are they to obey their leaders, but are also number two, point number two, pray for their leaders. Pray for their leaders. Notice verses 18 and 19 with me. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. First, I want you to notice here the source of this authority is God Himself, because He says here, pray for us. Pray for us. He's asking the congregation. To pray for him and the other leaders. And he's asking them to do that because what has to be done, this care for souls, is not something that can be done in the physical realm. You see, brothers and sisters, if if the only thing we were tasked to do as leaders is to provide you with resources, to schedule events, to make you comfortable, to give you healthy choices, happy thoughts, and helpful advice, you would not need to pray for us. No need to. I can do that in my own power. We can do that in our own strength. But instead, God has called us and tasked us with caring for souls in a dangerous world by speaking truth in love, pointing out idolatry, worldly ambitions and sins, encouraging and calling people to repentance and faith, presenting the gospel and the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit, fostering hope for heaven, and a deep and abiding selfless love for one another as saints. And for that reason, we need your prayers. Because we are confident, constantly reminded that there is nothing that needs to be done in this congregation that ultimately God wants to do in this congregation that we can do. We can't make you trust in Christ in the various areas that you need to do that. We can only pray that God will do that for us and through the preaching of His Word and through the loving one another that we're becoming more and more like Christ by His power and by His strength not by our brute ability or ingenuity or or intellect. And so, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you as a congregation to pray for us because we need your prayers. If we ever believe that the thing that will grow our church is something physical, we're in a mess. Let me give a testimony here at this point, and I wavered on whether I should do this or not, but let me, most of you have heard this maybe, others may have not, and it may benefit you. About a year and a half ago, we were at a point after we had lost about four or five families in our congregation. Where we were sitting in the elders' meeting and asking the question, actually I was the one that brought it up, and said, "If things don't turn around financially for us, I will take a second job so that we can so that we can continue, and that uh, and so that the congregation wouldn't have as much of a weight on their shoulders concerning the finances." And uh, and the elders said, "Well, we're not in that shape yet. We, we're not there yet. We don't want to. We don't want to automatically go that direction." And the elders and I all agreed that the thing we're not going to do is, uh, is is put out a bunch of flyers in every neighborhood in our community or put up a bell board, or have a radio spot. You know what they decided to do? They said, Shane, let's pray that God will bring us families that we can love on and shepherd. Let's pray that God will bring us families that we can care for. They're, they are out there and we believe that God has them for us. Let's ask God to do that for us so that So that we can continue to do what God's called us to do. That was a year and a half ago. And um, it is amazing, is not it not, elders? God answered that prayer. And there wasn't anything we did that promoted that or engineered that. And many of you are sitting here today because of the prayers of the elders saying, Lord, give us souls to shepherd that we may be a congregation faithful to your truth and to your gospel. Praise be to his name. So we not only see this source of authority, this prayer, but also we see the standard of this authority as we look at verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Do you see the standard for this leadership? There's supposed to be a leadership that has a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. This particular pastor is saying that we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Now let me turn here and just make a statement that that portion of text can so easily condemn us, so easily can sidetrack us, can so easily derail our affections. How in the world can somebody notice the passage? How can somebody be sure that they have a clear conscience? Many of you are haunted by the guilt of sin and struggle. Many of you have um, past lives and even current struggles, and you often wonder, Lord, there is no clear conscience. There is no surety of a conscience that's clear before you because I I am unable to be what God's called me to be. Is this pastor arrogantly sinless and declaring his sinlessness? I don't think so. I want us to see this idea of a clear conscience in the book of Hebrews, as this pastor has delineated it for us, and I want us to look at this just for a moment as we consider this. This may be why you were here. You're here this morning, so follow with me, if you will. Turn back to Hebrews chapter nine, Hebrews chapter nine and ten. This pastor, as he's looking at the the book of Hebrews, he or as he's writing the book of Hebrews, he is delineating for this congregation how they can have a clear conscience. Now, note this congregation is a Jewish congregation that has recently become Christian. They grew up in the Jewish faith. They were steeped in the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices of the Old Testament, constantly bringing their sacrifices, constantly doing everything they could to what? To do what? To come before God, holy and blameless. They had all these rituals and things and stuff. They were doing the book of Leviticus, the end of Exodus in the, in the book of Leviticus. All these different sacrifices and rituals. Why? So that they can come before God. And so these Jewish Christians who grew up in this had a guilty conscience. They could never do enough because they were constantly having to bring more and more sacrifices, do more and more for God. And then as this passage goes through, he's, he's preaching to these, these people and saying, you are now in Christ. And so notice with me in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. And I'm going to jump over. There's a little parenthesis there. I'm going to jump over that section and look at the first full sentence there. Verse 9, chapter 9. According to the arrangement... Gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He's here talking about the Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament was filled with sacrifices and gifts and offerings and none of these could perfect the conscience, it says, of the worshiper. They only deal with food and drink and various washings and regulations, body imposed until the time of Reformation. He's saying all of these things that you were doing wasn't perfecting the conscience at all. You see, the conscience is not helped by our activities. Many of you have sought to Clear your conscience by doing all kinds of other things in your life. Some of us cannot handle silence because it causes our conscience to begin kicking in. We like to take and fill our lives with all kinds of busyness and things and stuff and events so that we never have to deal with the conscience that's in our hearts and in our lives. We, we, we are, we're filling our lives with things We're trying to hide that conscience. trying to set it aside. We're trying to pretend like it isn't there. We're trying to deal with it in practical ways of making ourselves busy. That's exactly what these Hebrews were doing. They were constantly busy doing all kinds of stuff to be pleasing before God. And it says here in our passage that the Old Testament rituals and laws and sacrifices and offerings, they could not make perfect the conscience. Brothers and sisters, will you abandon your attempts to clear your conscience? by your morality, and by your actions, and by your busyness, you know that it doesn't work because you've tried it. I know it doesn't work because I've tried it. (laughs) We all have tried to get our conscience in line through the diligence and discipline of our lives, and we all know that it haunts us even in the midst of our busyness, even in the midst of our morality. Drop down in chapter 9 to verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, if all this blood of goats and bulls will sanctify the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will, listen to this, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal covenant offered himself without blemish to God. Look at this, brothers and sisters. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It is only through Christ and His activity that is the death of Him on the cross that will purify our conscience. The issue is not that your conscience can't be purified by actions. It's the issue of what action can purify my conscience. And there's only one, and that is the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. Him hanging on the cross. And so when you try to fill your life with all kinds of other things to clear your conscience, it doesn't work because it's not supposed to. There's only one action, one event, one circumstance, one thing that took place in order to purify our conscience. And that is the shedding of the blood of Christ, the eternal spirit offering himself without blemish before God to purify our conscience from all these dead works that we try to do in order to serve God. So you see here that this pastor, when he's saying, I'm sure of my clear conscience, he's not saying, look at me, I'm, I'm doing all these good things. I don't have sin. He's saying, I've tried all those things to clear my conscience, and I'm trusting in Christ. I'm trusting in what Christ has accomplished for me on the cross and in so doing, I have a clear conscience. You know why? Not because it may not, it may not even feel different, but it is different because at the end of the day, God says that you're purified by the blood of Christ. God is the one that says you're purified by the blood of Christ here in his word. Now, if that isn't enough, he goes on in chapter 10. I want to hang out here just, just a little bit, and we're going to be done here shortly. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, this law that was given in the Old Testament, it can never by the same sacrifices that they are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. All these laws and regulations can't make a man perfect before God. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to offer be, be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In other words, if that had fixed them, if they had no longer had a consciousness of their sins, they wouldn't keep coming back and bringing more and more sacrifices. They wouldn't need to. They would have been cleansed, but it didn't. Do you know what, you know what the law does? Do you know what that time period did after they presented their first sacrifice? And then they, there was a time period between there, and then they had to come back and present their other sacrifice? you know what that time period did? Look what it says in verse three, "But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year." Sometimes we think that, well, maybe the things and do, things that I do and the actions that I take can't clear my conscience, so I'm going to go to bed, and tomorrow morning when I wake up, my conscience will be a little better, And it is, isn't it, after you sleep it off. And then after about a week or two, you're so far distanced in time that your conscience feels even better. I I, I can do this now. I can can move forward. I can go on. And we convince ourselves of the lie that more time goes by, the less our conscience can get to us, the less it's pointed in our souls. And so, therefore, things are okay. Brothers and sisters, that time, as you know, many of you have done this, As that time goes by, there are constant reminders that we're still sinners, isn't there? In other words, this time of the Old Testament when they would take a sacrifice and then they have a period of time and then they have to come back and do a sacrifice again, all it was is a reminder that they are sinners over and over and over again. So our morality can't help us with our conscience. And in this case, it says time doesn't help us with our conscience. What's the answer? Take chapter 10 and look over to verse 19. Look over to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, you see that confidence? We have confidence to enter the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, notice this, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from what? From an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's the problem. If we keep coming back to the sacrifice over and over again, all it is is a reminder of our sinfulness. The problem is is you haven't given enough time is what you say. Here's the problem. You haven't gone to the time that God has designated for the clearing of our conscience. There is a point in time when God says, I'm going to clear the consciences of my people, and that's at the cross of Jesus Christ. We can enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus with confidence, according to verse 19. So the things we do doesn't clear our conscience, only the the thing that God did on the cross through Jesus Christ. The time that was given in the Old Testament didn't ever clear the conscience. It only reminded them of their sin over and over again. The time when Christ appointed to die on the cross and take our sin is the place where we can clear our conscience. Brothers and sisters, let me let me say it this way. If you're like every other human being on the planet that deals with with an evil conscience, come to Christ. Trust Jesus Christ in Him crucified, and only there will you find the guilt lifted and the sin atoned for and the forgiveness provided. And you can walk away from it then. Why? Because you're finally taking it seriously. You're going to the cross. And you're finding that in Christ, in Christ, this pastor can say, I am sure, verse eighteen of chapter thirteen, I am sure that we have a clear conscience. You know why that's important for the leaders? You know why that's important for us as elders to be sure that we have a clear conscience? Because when we are sure that we have a clear conscience, we've gone to the gospel and we are constantly as elders reminding each other of the gospel because we need it just as much, if not more, than you guys do. And if we're sure of a clear conscience, you know what we're able to better do for you? Bring you to the gospel, to bring you to Christ. And when your conscience is heavy and weary, we can say, brother, sister, let's go to the cross. And let's find there the lifting of our souls. He says, not only should they pray that They will continue to have this clear conscience, but also desiring to act honorably in all things. In other words, this pastor wants to act in ways that is honorable and good and just and right before all the people. Pray that God will sustain us, brothers and sisters. You do know that if Satan desires to cause this congregation harm, he will take his aim at the leaders, first and foremost. He will seek to destroy one of us as elders in order to get at the rest of the congregation. That's his best avenue. Pray that the Lord will cause us to desire to act honorably in all things so that we will not forsake, so we will not dishonor, so that we will not disavow this great office that God has given to us. Finally, verse 19, in closing, I want you to notice something that's just, I thought it was just very practical. Verse 19, this pastor speaks for the first time, I, you see that? He's saying, I. I personally urge you the more earnestly to do this. Many pray in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. I want you to notice in this point the care that this is being this is being given. He not only uses the word urge, but also earnestly. He's speaking of the, the, the desperation that he is acting, his congregation. Would you please, I urge you earnestly, would you please continue to pray for us? Why? This is why, brothers and sisters, this is amazing. I didn't see this. Actually, it just didn't, it didn't come to me. I've read through Hebrews a ton of times, but I didn't see this pop out until now. I've been talking about this pastor who's preaching this sermon, right? Almost every week I mention it. You guys are getting tired of me mentioning the fact that there's a pastor and he's preaching this book to the the congregation that's a congregation of Hebrews. You know what's amazing about this? He's writing this sermon to them because he cares for their souls and he's not able to be with them. Pray that I may be restored to you sooner. Reminds me of John Bunyan in prison writing the Pilgrim's Progress to his congregation so that they will be strengthened in the faith. This pastor is is writing this sermon to his congregation and some leader has got this sermon and reading it to this congregation that loves that leader who is for some reason not able to be with them. This word for restored could mean that he's in prison. It could mean he's in hiding. It could also mean that he's sick and that he hasn't been able to get out of bed. this pastor loves his congregation so much that he's writing this sermon so they can be read to the congregation so that what? So that they can endure. You know what this pastor is saying? Here's the issue of endurance kind of brought together. He's saying, we will not endure unless we all endure. Brothers and sisters, don't forget, earnestly pray for me. I urge you to earnestly pray for me so that I may be restored to you sooner so that we can endure how? Together. This pastor wanted to be with his congregation. Wanted to love them well. So that they can endure, not separated, but together.